This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. We are beginning a new series today entitled Making Life Lighter. That feels good too, doesn't it? The heart felt good just to even say that, making life lighter. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of the heart being the instrument that David would play early in his career when he was brought into the court of King Saul. And Saul was troubled. He was a man who had a troubled spirit and a heavy heart. So David would come in and play the harp to kind of lift his spirit and to take that burden off of him. And what we hope this series will do, the four of us, as we spend the next eight weeks in this series, what we're hoping is this series, in a sense, will be like a harp over your life. And uh, with each message providing, hopefully, some relief, maybe shaking out some of the heaviness of it that uh, you and I feel, it seems like, all the time today. You feel it, I feel it, the world feels it. We feel heavy, we feel pushed, we feel driven. And this morning, I want to begin this series on making life lighter by addressing what I call the issue of complexity, which seems to have inundated our age with the myriad of options that we face today and opportunities, and with it, the partner called exhaustion. Comes along with all those options and all those opportunities and experiences. You know, back in 1982, uh, futurist John Naisbitt wrote a book, a bestseller that was on the bestseller list for months and months and months called Megatrends. And uh, in that, he has a chapter of, of this uh, complexity that was just then beginning to break over our world. And he was talking about it as coming, and now we find ourselves kind of in the full whirlwind of it. And one of the chapters, this is what he writes. He says, Personal choices for Americans remained rather narrow and limited in the post-war period through much of the 1960s. There were few decisions to make in an either-or world. Either we got married or we didn't. And of course, we almost always did. Either we worked nine to five or we didn't work at all, period. It was either a Ford or a Chevy, chocolate or vanilla. Admittedly, we sometimes even got a third choice, NBC, ABC, CBS, look, life, or post. But it was still an either-or society, a society of mass markets and mass marketing advertising where homogeneous tastes were easily satisfied with just a few product choices, but not anymore. In a relatively short time, this unified mass society has fractionalized into many diverse groups of people with a wide array of differing tastes and values, what advertisers call a market-segmented, market-decentralized society. Remember when bathtubs were white, telephones were black, and checks were green? Remember it was just Protestant or Catholic, and now we have Bible churches, seeker churches, Buster churches, Gen X churches, Boomer churches, charismatic churches, and so on and so forth. He says the diversity in American households of the 1990s have become a Rubik's Cube of complexity, and like a Rubik's Cube, the chances of getting it back to its original state are practically nil. 
We live in a very complex society with all kinds of options swirling around us. But when you have a multi-optional, multi-opportunistic society, you know what we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves racing in this huge maze and lacking discernment. We gobble up as much as we can, as fast as we can. But you know, after a while, you begin to realize you're being driven. You're being driven by all this. It's now a totally external world that keeps pushing you to go faster and faster with those little demons behind you all the whole time trying to catch you. You try to eat them up before they eat you up. And when they do, you slow down and you kind of unload for a moment. And then the game starts at even a higher level. And as you move quicker and quicker, gobbling up the next experience, you ask yourself, why am I doing all this to myself? But here's the problem. You have no ability no ability to discern how to choose between them. And so life becomes more complex. You know, I find it interesting that when you used to ask people in our day, just a few years ago, how you're doing, typical Southern expression, fine, you know? But you know, I've found that just in the last few years, that's changed. Found it even this morning, walking in. You say to somebody, how are you doing? And what do they say? I'm tired. I'm tired. I went to McDonald's this morning. The girl came up to me and said, how are you doing this morning? I'm tired. Everybody seems tired. There seems to be a frenzy that overwhelms people. And, and we keep thinking we're somehow going to break out of it, but we don't. You know, this frazzled feeling was expressed at the introduction of a bestseller book that you can find in Barnes & Noble called Simple Abundance by Sarah Beth Brethneck. And here's what she says as she confesses at the opening. She says, I knew I wasn't the only woman frazzled, depressed, worn to unraveling, but I also knew I certainly wasn't the woman with the answers. I didn't even know the questions. I wanted so much money, success, recognition, genuine creative expression, but I had absolutely no clue as to what I truly needed. I was a workaholic, careaholic, and perfectionist. More often, I was an angry, envious woman constantly comparing myself to others only, only to become resentful because of what seemed to be missing in my life, although I could not have told you what that was. I had no clue. This secret sense of longing attributed to a perpetual state of drivenness for even more. That feel like you? Without any discernment of how to get out of that frenzied state? That's a modern Miss Pac-Man speaking with no clear direction, only incessant, incessant activity with haunting questions. So how do you manage yourself in a complex age with multiple options and multiple opportunities and multiple experiences and unfortunately, constant overload? Well, let me give you this three ways I see people doing it. Some people do it by what I call indiscriminate downsizing. Just indiscriminate downsizing. When the little demons finally catch you, when exhaustion and burnout come, they go through what I call indiscriminate downsizing. When life gets overwhelming, you find some relief by unloading anything and everything for a moment. The good and the bad all go overboard at the same time. So they quit redecorating their house and they quit community group at the same time. They stop partying because that finally is exhausting, but they also stop studying. They quit their job and sometimes quit their families all at the same time. It's called indiscriminate downsizing, just to get away from it all. And you know, there are many of you who are in the prime of life where you're sitting there at your office 
And that's what you're wanting to do. You see that boat way off in the distance. All you have on is a pair of shorts in a South Sea Island with a chain around your neck. And life, life is good. No responsibilities, no people, no problems. You're just there at peace with yourself. Then others manage complexity, maybe in a more healthy way, by building some margin in their life. And margin is what uh, Dr. Richard Swenson uses in his book that's entitled Margin. I have it here and it's in our cross-reference bookstore and I'll refer to it later. But margin is the difference between what you're doing and what your limits are. There's that little bit of margin between what you're doing and what your limits are. And he contends that when we use up the margin in our lives by just overdoing and over-experiencing and being overstimulated, life not only becomes exhausting, but something far more exhausting happens. And that is we get confused. And we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. And confusion brings this, the ultimate heaviness, which is discouragement. And so margin, in a way, becomes the space in your life, not only to refresh yourself, but margin becomes the space in which you get a chance to reassess, to reflect, to, to breathe back into your activity intelligence as to why you're doing what you're doing. And listen, when you understand why you're doing what you're doing, you can do a whole lot and feel excited and energetic. But if you lose the why of your activity and where it's going and whether it's meaningful or not, then no matter how little you do, you become tired and exhausted. That's why when you see people, especially teenagers today, and they talk about how they're so tired, oftentimes it's not because they're over, being overworked. They're being overstimulated, over-optionalized with no ability to discern what to do or why to do it. And so finally, it just burns out the circuitry of your interior. And you find yourself tired and exhausted. So margin gives you this chance to breathe back into your life, to take some time, which nobody wants to do today, to breathe back into your life some intelligence as well as refreshment. If you would like to know more of just some practical ways to do that, this book, as I said, is in our bookstore. It says, How to Create the Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Reserves that You Need. And I've gone through that this week. There are some wonderful, wonderful practical things that you can do if you find yourself getting up in the morning and having always to sigh. <sighs> Get in your car and go to work. Drive the kids to school. People seem to always be needing to catch their breath. And there are reasons for that that you need to know. And first of all, we need to know it's not right. Life was not meant to be lived that way. You know, one of the things that happens when our people of fellowship go on our missionary trips and they go to different countries around the world, less sophisticated than their own, and they always come back saying, man, it was impoverished, but it just felt good. You know what felt good? Because in those third world countries, those Eastern European countries, there's margin in the whole society. And you feel it. They're going to get it done. They're just going to take longer to get it done. Right? And there's breathing room there, and reflection and relationships. But we've squeezed all that out for the American dream, which is productivity and efficiency. And it's killing us. This morning, I want to concentrate on the third option that you can take, one that's uh, 
little deeper, a little more philosophical, and certainly a lot more spiritual than just creating margin or indiscriminate downsizing. And I call that the essence of real simplicity. The essence of real simplicity. See, a lot of us think simplifying is simplicity. No, simplifying is just a practical application of downsizing. The essence of real simplicity is not external. The essence of real simplicity is internal. It's when a person comes to a way of life. And I want to say at the very beginning that I want to confess my sin. I do not know how to do this well. Okay? So I am a seeker. I am part of the journey to get here. But what real simplicity is, and I see it everywhere in the Scripture, it's this unique ability that is given to you by God to be able to discern and choose wisely in whatever age you live, in whatever culture, in our case, in a complex age, in such a way that life not only has the excellence of balance, which is this concept called external simplicity, but it also has something even deeper. And that's this deep sense of purpose. You know why you're doing what you're doing. And because you know why, and because you have balance, then words like stressed and tired and overwhelmed and fatigued, they begin to disappear from your vocabulary. But when they're there, something's wrong. This is a very timely message, isn't it? Speaks to everywhere every one of us are. I mean, here we're going into May and it just feels like we're exhausted and yet we're going to push the pedal to the metal. And go even faster. What is the essence of real simplicity? Well, I want you to know I believe it is found in a nugget story over in the Gospel of Luke. And if I'd asked you to turn there, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10 and let's find that nugget, so to speak, because it's in a story as Jesus makes a brief stopover in Bethany, which was two miles southeast of Jerusalem, and He's passing through. It's six months before His crucifixion, and He moves through this little town, and yet a young lady invites her to stop and take a time of rest in her home, and then what occurs there helps us understand what is the essence of real simplicity. I want to read the story to you, and then we're going to begin to make some observations. So look there in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 38. Here's what happens. Now as they, that is, Jesus and the disciples, were traveling along, Jesus entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's Word, seated at His feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to Him, and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me? to do all the serving alone. Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary. Really, only one. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. You know, I almost think in our age it would be good for us to open that passage and read it every morning just to remind ourselves of the Lord's priorities on life. Now, there's some unanswered questions in that text like what are the few things and the only thing and things like that. But I want to start by you stepping into the text with me. I want you to help me here by making three word associations and then we'll look at these two women. So I want you to look first of all at verse 41 and I want you to tell me 
What goes with the phrase, so many things? Somebody shout it out. What? Worried and what else? Bothered. Okay, so there's the word association. So many things, worried and bothered. What about few things? Necessary. The few things are necessary. What about really only one? What goes with that? The good part. You see that? So many things, worried and bothered. Few things, necessary. The good part being just really only one. So we get this discernment level that goes through this passage. Then there are these two women in the passage. And you've noticed they're sisters. It's obvious, isn't it, that Martha is the firstborn? She's the initiator. Mary is a little bit more laid back and relational. But it goes deeper than just personality, I think, because the Lord's going to call us all to be like a Mary by the end of this passage. And in this encounter, though you don't read it until Mary comes and says, she's left me here. I mean, Martha says she, Mary's left me here. You, you finally figure out that both these women invited Jesus and His disciples into their home. They began to host them. They began to serve them, prepare a meal and those kind of things. And all that was going on. They were both involved in that as gracious hosts. But a moment comes when these two sisters part ways. There comes a moment here where they make two different choices and in that, for us, in a complex age, they symbolize two very distinct lifestyles. Now I want you to notice, somewhere in this encounter, Martha goes from serving the Lord to doing too much. From serving the Lord to doing too much. If you look at verse 40, it says she became distracted. And then it uses the phrase, with all her preparations. If you look in the margin, if you have a Bible, some of your Bibles will just say, much service. <laughs> she just took on too much. Somewhere out there, she crossed the line. And listen, here's what happened. The minute she crosses this very hard line to discern, she goes from welcoming to the Lord into her life, into her home from welcoming Him, the Lord of heaven and earth, to criticizing Him. <laughs> you see that? Jesus Christ is in my house. I can just imagine what she said. Here's the King of Israel, perhaps. The Savior of the world. Jesus Christ is in my house. That's how she started. But by the time we get to the end, she's worried about casseroles and place settings. And Jesus Christ needs to do something about it. Jesus Christ is in my house. But the joy is gone. The excitement of life is gone. Instead, she has become distressed and worried and critical and demanding. Lord, tell her to help me. What a life association that is. Can you associate your life with that? Boy, I found myself there more times than I care to admit, and it hurts even as I read it or even ask that question. Because our increasingly overstimulated, over-optionalized, over-advertised world is constantly stimulating us to become Martha. It's constantly saying to us, you need that. You need to have that. What about this? You're falling behind. Don't miss that. 
You haven't been there. Why haven't you been there? Others have been there. Why don't you do what others are doing? Here's some more responsibility to shoulder for your life. And so we start out welcoming the Lord into our life. And then we find later on in our Christian experiences that we're in a frenzy doing things. <laughs> this is where the insanity begins. Doing things we really don't even want to do. But we never stop ourselves to ask, do I really like to play golf? It's just because everybody else is doing it. I think I got to go. Do I really like fly fishing? Do I really like hunting as a man? Do I really like hosting this, doing that, joining this club? We don't ever ask that question. We just gobble it all up in a frenzy, doing things, not knowing why we're doing what we're doing, buying things we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people we don't even really care about. Right? But the problem, and listen, let me say it again. The problem is, and I almost want to find a chair to sit in and say, I'm Robert Lewis, and I don't know how to stop. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. We're like that as well. That's Martha. Mary, on the other hand, takes a different route. She goes, and listen, she goes from serving the Lord. She's in there preparing and stuff, just like Martha. She goes from serving the Lord to the Lord. Somewhere she crossed over that line too, in a different direction. And in her actions here, and in the Lord's comments about her that follow in these next couple of verses, here's where we discover four very simple components of what I call the essence of simplicity. That's not simple to get there. It'll cost you something. But it is the essence of simplicity that breathes into your life intelligence and purpose and balance and meaning. Here's the first one. Real simplicity always begins, you ready, with lordship. Believe it or not, believe it or not, the pace of your life, the directions of your life, and the choices of your life, at the core of all that is an issue called authority. It's the issue of who's the authority of your life. In verse 39, it says that Mary illustrates, or she illustrates this in verse 39 by coming at this moment, this moment that she crossed over and posturing herself at Jesus' feet, which is this picture really in the uh, uh, Near East. It's this picture of submission. She sits at His feet. And Jesus is beginning to teach now. Probably she was in the kitchen, and, and they're both standing side by side, and Jesus begins to teach, and Mary picks up on it, and she says in her heart, there's authority there. And I need to hear this. This is important. I can't, need, I can't afford to miss this. I need this for my life. I need direction. While Martha was saying, where's the cheese? <laughs> See? And so Martha looks for some additional silverware and cups, and Mary leaves and goes and sits at Jesus' feet. And we need to see that, because that is a critical internal moment that no one can give you or me. We can only give that gift to ourselves. No one can keep a complex world simple as long as you or I believe that we 
are capable of managing our life. And that's a hard confession to make. As long as we are in authority, as long as we posture ourselves above life rather than at Jesus' feet, then let me tell you where you're going to find yourself. You're going to find yourself in the kitchen. Always in the kitchen. Busy at work rather than at Jesus' feet listening about life. Building the internal world of life. Because real simplicity always begins with lordship. And lordship all, all can only begin when you say to yourself, I don't know how. I need direction. I need to have new values that guide me in making my choices. And I need to know what those are and allow myself the ability to say no to this because I know where I'm going. You know, one of the things I love about some of the people in our church who've discovered a new life is it's not just when they receive Christ. It's when you're sitting with them, you know, in an office or at lunch or whatever, as I did even the last couple of weeks and had several people say this to me, and I thought it was so healthy for them to say this. Here's a, here's a guy who's well on into his life, and he's come to Christ, and he said to me at the dinner table, you know, I don't even have a clue how to be married. Oh, that's so good. Because only when you say, I don't have a clue how to do it, will you be open to listening how to do it. Have you ever said, I don't have a clue how to slow down my life? See, when you finally admit that, you're open. You're open for, finally, somebody's ripped open the chest, and you're open for some instruction. But that's a lordship issue. I want you to tell me where David's life is postured when he penned the 23rd Psalm. Listen, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. His rod... His staff, listen to the next line, they comfort me. You mean when He beats you, that's comfort? Oh yeah. When it leads you to life, it does. Real simplicity at the core is an authority issue. It's when you finally say to yourself every day, who knows best, me or the Lord of life? But it goes on. Secondly, real simplicity requires time for listening. Notice Mary didn't just posture herself at Jesus' feet. It says, and she listened to the Lord's Word. Now I want to tell you, write this down. If you're going to write something down in your notes, circle this second one and say, this is the hard part. Okay? Just put it real big. This will be the rub. This is where it gets difficult. Not because it is difficult. It's just difficult to do it because we don't believe. And we need to admit that. The curse of so much of our age is that we are so busy doing, so busy experiencing, so busy optionalizing that we have no time for listening and the interior world dries up. And yet without listening, life eventually runs over us. You know in the Psalms, the psalmist said in Psalm 81 this, it says, and this psalmist is quoting God now, he says, my people would not listen to my voice. And then listen to the next phrase. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their own heart to walk after their own devices. 
Now, it doesn't say anything about doing sin. It just says, I gave them over and said, okay, go do it. And what happens is we go do it, and without any internal compass or guide, after a while, we feel those haunting demons behind us catching up and gobbling us up. Because I would not listen. I want you to know that there is a form of listening at a number of levels, but what is the highest and purest form of listening? What is it? I believe that the highest and purest form of listening is when you get, when you decide, you have to take time alone with God. Not, not talking about here at church, not talking about being in a community group or Bible study. You take time alone with God and you read His Word, you're postured at His feet, listening, and you read it, and in the quiet of that, over time, not immediately, it may happen immediately, but most often than not, it's over a period of time and sometimes a long time, God begins to meet with you. Have you heard the term quiet time? That's what we're talking about. We're just talking about something that's called a quiet time. The psalmist says it this way. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His Word do I hope. Some of you are saying, you know, I've tried a quiet time and it doesn't work. Well, let me suggest to you that if you'll give yourself a long-term perspective in that and meeting with God, God will meet with you. You may need some help. One of the things I'd recommend is the one-year Bible. You know, then pick up something that gives you a little structure and every day you just open up and read an Old Testament, New Testament passage, but you have to set aside a quiet place. It has to be undisturbed. Nobody's going to come in and you take 15 to 30 minutes, however you want to do it, and you read, but you read with this on your mind. Lord, I am listening. And if He chooses to do nothing else but just give you some information from His Word, that's okay because you know what you're doing? You're booting up. That's what you're doing. You're loading up your computer. And after a period of time, you cannot keep loading up on this stuff without it starting to spill out. You just can't do it. After a while, its values begin to affect your values. Its priorities begin to affect your priorities. And now you're making a choice out there in the real world of life. And just as you're about to make this choice, some of what you've read over the past year comes back and says, do you really want to do that? And you know what that is in that moment? Whether you understand it or not, He's leading you in the paths of righteousness. He's making you lie down in green pastures. He's restoring your soul. And all of a sudden, you have an internal network, a framework to say, you know, I, I appreciate that, but I really can't do that. Sometimes they won't understand why you can't do that. You mean you won't go to the duck club with me? No, I just, I can't do that. Why? Because internally, months before, you've been reading about what are the priorities are of your life. You mean you won't go on that trip? You mean you won't take this new position? I mean, it's going to pay you so much more money. You'll have so much more responsibility. And you'll be so much more exhausted. No, I really can't do that. Why? Because He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Third element of real simplicity is this. Real simplicity will always express itself with limits. Jesus' words in verse 42 are absolutely profound in a complex age. He says, only a few things are necessary. You know, the hardest question of my life 
at every new season is this. Do I know what the few things are? Because, see, I don't think these are generalized. I think these are personalized. You know what the few things are for your life? The few real priorities, the real focus points, the real bullets that you need to concentrate on so that nothing else will ever impact those things. In fact, those things will impact your world because you make sure they succeed. You know what those are? Only when you listen, only when you sense God affirming certain things is right and best for you, then only then will you feel the confidence to say, I know what those are. But the only way you can do that, the only way you can discern the few things from the many things is to have some kind of internal value system that has been set in place because you have regularly ingested it. Not just the experiences of life externally. You've regularly ingested it. And out of that come spontaneous, wise, discerning choices about what you will do and what you won't do. So this whole path of real simplicity starts with the issue of authority, who knows best, moves to regular listening, some of which seems like it's impacting, some of which won't, but you keep investing by faith. And as you ingest, you ingest values and priorities that you know not of, but in time they start spilling out to the surface in choices, and suddenly one day you begin to discern and choose what is best and right for you and for the kingdom of God. Excellence and balance, but also real purpose. By the way, that's exactly how Jesus lived. He's the prime example. If you keep your hand in Luke, but I want you to turn back one gospel to Mark chapter 1. And I just want you to see one moment in Jesus' life. There are many of those. Bill Wellens next week is going to be talking about your inner world in even more depth to help us think more deeply about that because this is the life, I'm telling you, it's the life that refreshes. But I want you to notice how Jesus did all that I just said. It's in a moment where this whole chapter begins with Him doing, 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 doing. He's done it for days now. He's done it all day. Now the sun is setting and we pick up the story in verse 32. And it says, Now evening had come, so now it's night, but the doing's not over with. After the sun had set, they began bringing to Jesus all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. In fact, the whole city, can you imagine the pressure of that? The whole city gathered at His door. And He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And in the early morning, now it's real early in the morning. Can you imagine how exhausted He was? But now it's early morning, but He's up. Everybody else is asleep. It's still dark. And he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place, and he prayed there. And then later, Simon, Peter, and his companions hunted for him, and they found him, and they said to him, in typical experiential style, everyone is looking for you. Can you feel, listen, you type A's, can you feel the responsibility of that? Everyone's looking for you. There's all kinds of responsibility out there. Now I want you to notice Jesus. Unbelievable here. And he said to them, let's get out of here. That's what he said. Let's go. We're out of here. In order that I may preach in other places also, now listen, for that is what I came out for. That's my few things. It wasn't healing everybody. It wasn't casting out demons. It wasn't making a big splash. Can you imagine Simon Peter? I can just see him, Mr. Taipei. Are you kidding it's all here. Everything we wanted, it's here. 
This is a great setup. It's a platform. It's a knock it out grand slam. It's a Super Bowl touchdown. It's everything we've ever wanted. There are endorsements waiting at our door. He says, I'm leaving. With all those needs, with all those hurts, with all those unmet expectations, Jesus walked away. Why? Because inside, before God, He knew His purpose and He lived in that focused simplicity. Oh, that we might just get even a hair closer to that kind of lifestyle. Because it's the lifestyle that refreshes. And it's the lifestyle that makes a complex world simple. You know, at the conclusion of Jesus' life, He made a remarkable statement in John 17. He said, Father, I thank You that I have finished the work Thou hast called me to do. I finished it. And you say, if you were in a first century experience with Jesus, you finished the work. Give me a break. Your people are still under the tyranny of Rome. Slavery is everywhere. Women are treated like property. Sin is rampant. Only a fraction of the people in this country have been healed. And you're finished? Can you feel the guilt-laden statement in that? And yet Jesus looked clear-eyed at anybody who would ask that question and with unique simplicity would say, I'm done. I finished. I came under authority. I regularly listened. I did what I was supposed to do. And I'm out of here. Does that not feel good? Wouldn't that be a great way to live? It's how to keep a complex world simple. Which brings us really to the concluding statement, and that is real simplicity is just another phrase. Listen, for eternal life. I want you to know these Gospels are stories that are arranged by the Gospel writers. They're not necessarily all in historical sequence, and this is probably one of those, but this, this, this section of Scripture begins back in verse uh, 25 when a lawyer comes up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you hear that? And he wasn't talking about what happens to me when I die. He's talking about how can I live a full and meaningful life. That's what he's really asking. How can I do that, teacher? And so Jesus tells him a story, and then Luke arranges this story of Mary and Martha, I think, to answer that question. What must I do to inherit a full and meaningful life? And you know what the first thing Jesus does is He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know what that means? What Jesus is telling this young man is, listen, you need to have enough margin in your life for relationships. That's what He's telling him. So you can have compassion and feeling. Because remember, it was the busy people that moved right by that hurting Samaritan. And now in our story, if we were to say, well, what else? Well, then this is a story of Martha and Mary. And what it means is you need to keep your life simple with a simplicity that comes from within, from interacting daily with the Lord of life. And you know what will happen? You'll live. You'll have eternal life. You know, I've seen a lot of athletic contests, and it's amazing that the most often interrupted event in an athletic contest is an athlete having to tie his shoe. Isn't that right? It can be any contest and there's a moment where they call timeout and a billion people watch a guy bend down and lace up his shoes. But you know what a shoe represents? A shoe represents life. If you're playing a sports contest and you have a shoe that's untied, first of all, it's uncomfortable. Secondly, you cannot play nearly as well with it untied as it's tied. 
and in many cases is actually dangerous to the person. And you know what? Our life is like that shoe. Because every morning we have to get up and live. This is our life. And it starts out every morning, doesn't it? Looking just like this. And you can put it on and not tie it up and you can go out and live and you know what your life's going to feel like? It's going to feel loose. It's going to feel out of control. It's going to inhibit the things you really want to do and it's really dangerous. And so we have to finish out our, uh, start our day every day by making some hard decisions. We have to take this lace. And you know what this lace stands for? Who knows best? Who knows best? Is it me? Or is it the Lord? And let me tell you, if you really believe, if you, now you cannot get away from this, if you really believe He knows best, then you have to spend time with Him. You have to. And that's, that's, if, it, if that sounds like legalism, it's not. Because if it's, kind of, if it's legalism, it'll die. I'm just saying it's a decision. Who knows best? You have to take that. And then secondly, after you've spent time with Him, you've got to take this other lace. And you know what this other lace stands for? It's what has He told you? What has He said? And then you start your day by taking who knows best, what He said, and then you make a decision by an act of the will to tie those together tight in obedience. And you go out and play the game of life. That's how you live simple in a complex age. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning just for the reminder in our frenzy and our exhaustion at points. Many times, Lord, in our disobedience, we're reminded that one day we're going to stand before You, we're going to see You, and You who love us so much, You're not there to punish us. You're there to embrace us. But You want to do that with an excitement that we would enjoy knowing that you and I partnered in life and that what we did was not Pac-Man. It was discipleship. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and I pray for my sinful, disobedient heart here this morning. Lord, help us. Help us to stay in the center of real simplicity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.